Chapter Twenty of the Sheridan Road Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sheridan Road Mystery by Paul and Mabel Thorne. Chapter Twenty: The Fallen Pine. That Marsh escaped a similar fate later in the afternoon was due solely to his individual way of arming himself. For some years, Marsh had carried a small automatic pistol, which unobtrusively rested in the side pocket of his coat. When he was outside in weather that required an overcoat, the automatic was temporarily transferred to the overcoat pocket. Marsh did this because a gun was seldom needed except in emergencies. At such times, a movement toward the hip pocket, where men usually carry their revolvers, frequently gave the other man an opportunity to act first. Marsh had even carried his precautions in this line a little further, for the automatic was always placed in the left-hand pocket. A movement of the left hand does not receive the same suspicious attention from a criminal. In fact, as he had several times discovered, it was possible to distract the attention by a movement of the right hand, while quickly drawing the gun with the left, and at close quarters a gun in the left hand was just as effective as in the right. When no word had come from Morgan by one o'clock, Marsh decided to look the detective up. He called Morgan's home on the telephone, then the detective bureau, and two nearby precinct stations that Morgan might have been likely to drop into while waiting to telephone him. Morgan's mother said he had left early, and the detective bureau informed Marsh that they had not heard from Morgan again after receiving a report from him early in the day. The stations did not remember having seen the detective for a long time. At each place Marsh left his name, and a message for Morgan to ring up at once if he came in. Marsh was now in a quandary. He remembered that he had not asked Morgan to look anything up that morning, and therefore knew of no place where he might endeavor to obtain a trace of him. The case had now reached a point where immediate action was necessary, yet he could not act alone. Of course, he could have called upon the Secret Service Division at the Federal Building, but he had special reasons for wanting Morgan's and Tierney's assistance at this time rather than that of the Secret Service men. After long consideration, therefore, he came to the conclusion that there was nothing he could do except stay by his telephone and wait. It never occurred to Marsh that anything of a serious nature could have happened to the detectives on the crowded city streets. The only plausible explanation of the delay might be that Morgan and Tierney had discovered some new clue which they thought of sufficient importance to follow up before keeping their appointment with him. Marsh accepted this explanation readily, because he realized that there were still many loose ends to the case that would permit of new developments at any moment. When four o'clock came, however, and there was still no word from Morgan, Marsh decided that something must have happened to the two men. He had had ample evidence of the desperate and daring character of their opponents. To raise a hue and cry in the police department would utterly defeat his plans. Whatever he did must be carried out quietly. So far as he knew, at this time, there were only two possible sources of information. One, the house on Oak Street, the other, the closed house at Hubbard Woods. First he would get a report from the man on watch at Oak Street. If nothing had occurred there, he would then carry out his proposed raid on the Hubbard Woods house with some of his own men. Having reached this decision, Marsh put on his coat and hat and went down to the corner of Lawrence Avenue to wait for a bus. A stream of motor cars swept steadily by, and when one of these turned into the curb and stopped, Marsh paid little attention to it. He was astounded, therefore, when a man opened the door and addressing him said, "'Step in and be quick about it.' Marsh gave the man a sharp glance, then noticing that one of the man's arms was extended toward him, he dropped his eyes and saw that the coat sleeve was pulled down over the hand, while the barrel of an automatic projected about an inch from the sleeve. Marsh looked about him quickly. The policeman in front of his house was too far away to be of any assistance. 
if, in fact, his attention could be attracted at all. In the other direction, the nearest people were two women, one of whom was pushing a baby carriage. He then saw that another man had descended from the driver's seat and was approaching him. Marsh stepped back, and his right hand shot toward his right hip pocket. Not that he had any intention of drawing a gun, while so carefully covered by the other man, but he had a thought. "'Easy, easy,' cried the man. "'You haven't a chance in the world. Do you want to get bumped off right now?' Marsh murmured something inaudible, and withdrew his hand. The man with the gun signaled to his companion. This man came up, and felt around Marsh's hip pockets. "'Ah, he's kidding,' the fellow exclaimed. "'He ain't got any gun at all.' Marsh's thought had been correct. "'All right,' said the man with the gun, smiling. "'Let's go.' It had flashed through Marsh's mind that what was now happening to him might have also happened to Morgan and Tierney. If such was the case, it was more than likely that these men would take him to the same place, and that was just the information he wanted. As for getting him into that place, that was a different matter. To carry out his quickly formed plan, it was necessary for Marsh to sit with his left side away from this man, who would probably join him in the car. So without further hesitation, he climbed into the car and settled back in the far corner of the seat. The man followed and sat down at Marsh's right, pulling the door to after him. The other man climbed back to his seat at the wheel and started the car. They went down Sheridan Road, and turning through the next street, made the circuit of the block, returning again to Sheridan Road, and moving swiftly north. After a time the man turned to Marsh and said, "'If you take things easy, you'll get out of this with a whole skin. But if you start anything, good night.' Marsh smiled, but said nothing. "'Oh, I know. You're a cool customer.' the man appraised. But if you think you're going to pull anything over on us this time, you've made a bum guess. It's hardly likely, replied Marsh, that an unarmed man would try any tricks while you sit there with that automatic. The fact is, however, that you fellows are giving yourselves a lot of trouble for nothing. What do you mean? snapped the man. I mean that I have already offered you my services. All you had to do was to tip me the word. The man looked at Marsh suspiciously for a moment. Do you mean that? he said. I see no reason why you should doubt my word. All right, returned the man. Hand over those papers you've got, and I'll drop you out at the next street. What papers do you mean? queried Marsh. There you go, stalling again. No use. The boss said to bring you up, and I guess he knows best. I don't know where you get that idea about any papers, said Marsh. I can show you quickly enough that the only papers I have on me are of a personal nature, and of no use to anyone else. Maybe so, maybe so but after we get you under lock and key, we know damn well where we can find them. Thus the argument continued at intervals, until they were far up into the North Shore suburbs. Darkness had fallen, and the interior of the car was absolutely black, except when they passed an occasional street light or an automobile. As Marsh had told Morgan, if you can only make them talk long enough, they grow careless. Passing under the last street light, Marsh had observed that the automatic was no longer leveled in his direction. The car was of the limousine type, with a glass partition shutting off the driver, so that unless he happened to look around, he would not know what was going on within the car. Marsh figured that now darkness had fallen, the driver's attention would be directed entirely to the road ahead, for street lights along the suburban section of Sheridan Road were few and far between. "'It's getting warm in here,' said Marsh. He raised his right hand and pushed his hat back on his head. At the same time his left hand withdrew the automatic from his coat pocket, and the next instant it was pressed into the ribs of the man beside him. "'One move and you're through,' breathed Marsh in his ear. "'Give me that gun.' His right hand came down with the hand closing over the man's automatic. 
The man started to swear, but stopped suddenly as Marsh warned. Shut up. This matter is in my hands now, and I mean business. Marsh slipped the man's automatic into his own pocket, and then brought out a pair of light steel handcuffs, which he immediately snapped on his prisoner's wrists. When I get ready, Marsh informed him, I'm going to step out of this car, and I want you to sit perfectly still until I am gone. If you want to know how good a shot I am, just make a move. Marsh settled back into his corner, and the car rolled on. At last, just as they made a sharp turn, Marsh caught a different sound from the wheels, and he knew they had passed into a driveway. With the last warning to the man, Marsh quietly opened the door on his side and stepped out of the car. In the distance he could hear his late captor's manacled hands beating on the glass of the front windows to attract the driver's attention. There was no time to lose, for they would be after him in a minute. Marsh sped down the driveway, but before he reached the entrance gate he could hear the hum of the pursuing car, and as he sprang through the gate the car was only a few yards away. Then a most surprising thing happened. Weakened by its rotting fibres and the never-ending battle with the winds, the dead pine, which stood beside the gate, swayed and cracked. The next minute it fell crashing across the driveway in a cloud of dying splinters and dust, effectually blocking pursuit by motor. Marsh dashed across the roadway and concealed himself in the underbrush. The falling pine had identified the place to Marsh as quickly as if the men had told him its name. He was facing the entrance to the house in Hubbard Woods. The driver of the pursuing car had switched on the powerful headlights to aid him in locating the fugitive. These lights warned him of the fallen pine blocking the road. Marsh could hear the grinding of the emergency brake, and the hum of the motor died away as the man killed his engine in an effort to make a quick stop. So swiftly had the car been moving, however, that it struck the log with a tremendous impact that echoed through the still woods. The front wheels scattered far and wide, and the body of the car climbed up and rested on the pine log. The two men, although probably well shaken up by the accident, jumped hastily from the car and rushed into the roadway. The headlights were shining directly on Marsh, and for a moment he thought the men might discover him among the bushes. Standing in the glare, however, they were partially blinded, and the manacled man, realizing this, turned to the other. "'Shut off those damn lights! He'll take a pot-shot at us before we can see him!' The driver leaped back to the car, shut off the lights, and then returned to his companion. "'Not much danger,' he said. "'The guy's probably making a quick getaway.' "'Hell!' the manacled man exclaimed. "'The boss'll skin us alive!' "'The boss be damned!' exclaimed the other. "'This guy'll have the bulls on us if we don't get him, and the boss won't be ready for the getaway until Thursday.' "'We've got to get him,' declared the manacled man. "'He can't run all the way to Chicago. I figure he made for either the electric line or the railroad station. You beat it up there quick and see if you can get him.' "'All right,' agreed the driver, "'and you run down the road.' "'Where do you get that stuff?' exclaimed the other, holding up his manacled hands. "'I'm no good with these bracelets on. It's all up to you now. You're wasting time. Beat it!' The driver started up the road at a run, and Marsh listened to the rapid beat of his footfalls until they disappeared in the distance. Then he cautiously crept out of the bushes and approached the other man. It was so dark that Marsh could barely make out the man's form, as it was outlined against the gray of one of the gate-posts. Consequently, the man did not discover him until Marsh's hand was on his arm. "'That you, Wagner?' he gasped. Marsh laughed. "'Don't make me talk,' he said. "'I'm all out of breath, making that getaway your friend spoke of.' "'Hell!' the other man groaned expressively. "'It sure is for you,' replied Marsh. "'Now just lie down on the road while I tie your feet.' The man turned to run. 
probably hoping to escape in the darkness. Marsh's hand still gripped his arm, and with a quick movement of his foot, Marsh threw the man down, then unbuckled the belt around the fellow's waist and proceeded to secure his feet with it. As Marsh rose to a standing position, a voice close at hand said, "'That'll be all for you. Throw up your hands.' Marsh did not move. "'I said, put up your hands,' repeated the voice. "'They are up,' replied Marsh, counting on the darkness. "'Don't kid me.' The speaker suddenly flashed an electric pocket-lamp on Marsh. By its gleam, Marsh saw the sparkle of a revolver, and wisely put his hands over his head. The man was standing in front of thick shrubbery. At this moment Marsh saw, by the dim glow of the pocket-lamp, two hands slipped from the shrubbery and close about the man's throat. The lamp and the revolver fell to the ground, as the man instinctively raised his own hands to break the hold. But in the darkness Marsh heard his body drop with a wheezing sigh. End of chapter 20